Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am our college teaching director over for our Anderson campus. Uh, but since the semester's not quite started yet, as you can probably tell by the fact that there is milk in the grocery store and pretzels in your pantry, uh, we do not have all of our students yet. They have not yet arrived. Uh, and so because of that, I'm just kind of floating around. And so I'm here this morning. Uh, they have asked me to come and speak and I'm really excited about it. I mean, I'm, I'm always excited to come back to Southwood. I worked uh, in the six or seven years that I worked at Grace. Two of them were here at Southwood in our youth, in our youth ministry. So uh, it's always good to be back. Great to be with y'all. Um, and I hope that you've had a good summer. I hope that it's been refreshing. I hope that maybe you had a vacation somewhere in there or a, a water park trip or some time off or whatever it is. I hope that there's been something refreshing during the summer for you, for your family. Uh, but maybe some of us encountered in this summer a moment something like this. Where are we going? I told you, Grandma's house. Why do we have to go to Grandma's house? I told you, because I need to go and work. Why you can work on a Saturday? Well, um, because if I work on a Saturday, I thought you would like to spend the night at Grandma's for a whole weekend. No, uh, you're going to Las Vegas for a vacation. No, I'm not. You're trying to dump up stuff on Grandma's so you can go out and play. Nope. Yes, you are. I just want a vacation from you kids. That's just not fair. It's fair. No, it's not. this weekend called Mommy and Daddy Vegas Trip. There's not going to be no kids at Vegas. I want to go to Vegas with you guys. I don't, there's nothing to do at Grandma's. Yes, there is. You can have fun, watch movies, stay open for a while. I want to go to Las Vegas. No, you're going to Grandma's. You're going to Grandma's with me. No, Grandma's is boring. There's nothing to do with Grandma's. That's what I said. So maybe you were there, right? I hope the summer overall was refreshing, but maybe uh, you maybe found yourself at some point driving somewhere or doing something with that tried your patience just a bit, right? Maybe maybe it was driving to grandma's house. Maybe it was going somewhere else. Maybe it was just staying home. Uh, but at some point in, in the summer, we probably found ourselves feeling a little tired, right? Even though the whole thing maybe overall was refreshing, hopefully refreshing, there's probably moments of exhaustion. There's probably moments of being tired, uh, moments where our endurance was being tested by one person or another. And the truth is, man, that, that's life. Right? That, that's where we find ourselves just in general, uh, any given time, whether it's summer, winter, spring, fall, wh- whenever it is, we find ourselves in moments feeling burned out or, or feeling drained. Moments where we feel like our exhaustion is just overwhelming, e- either in our family or in our work or in our school, in our relationships. And, and sadly, Sometimes we find ourselves feeling that exhaustion, feeling that tiredness, feeling like our endurance just can't hold out with the Lord, with our God who saves us, who loves us. In fact, what I found in preparing for this talk is that if, of all the believers, of all the Christians that come to know the Lord at a younger age, right? So maybe they grew up in a Christian home, or maybe they got saved at VBS. Of all the believers who get saved by the age of 13-ish, 
40% of those kids, 40% of those believers walk away from the faith by the age of 19 to never come back. 40%. I mean, there can be a lot of reasons for that. Maybe you're thinking of someone in your family who did that, who's doing that. And there's a lot of circumstances, a lot of factors at play, but I'll tell you, a lot of the time, it's because they just get tired. They just feel exhausted. They just feel like they can't quite endure through this belief, this faith, this religion that was handed to them or that they used to care a lot about or maybe that they never really cared about to begin with. At some point, man, we feel exhausted, and when that happens, we are tempted at times to just quit. But is that what we're called to? Is that what believers are really expected to do, to just, just, just quit when we feel exhausted? So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with that exhaustion? How do we endure? This morning we're in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, at the very beginning, uh, where we see the author of Hebrews uh, basically calling out his audience and encouraging his audience to live with endurance, to push through exhaustion. And he doesn't just call them to that and then watch them try to figure it out. Instead, he calls them to it and then he shows them how do we do that? How do we endure? And he gives them three kind of main principles. He tells them, if you're going to endure, first and foremost, you need to look out. You need to look outward at the lives of believers, both in your life and in our scripture, for encouragement, for wisdom. He says, we don't just look out, though. If we want to endure, we also need to look inward. We need to look in to see what, what are the things that are holding me back? What are my strengths? But also, what are my weaknesses? What hinders me? What's a detriment in my life to my endurance? But he says, we don't just look out. We don't just look in. We also look upward. We look at the example set for us by Jesus Christ. Because what we find, what he highlights is the fact that Jesus Christ, I mean, he has given us an example through his own life, through his own ministry, through his own endurance. His example encourages us and enables us to endure ourselves. But we need to remember the context of this passage, right? So anytime uh, we're seeking to understand the content of something, we need to remember our context. For this passage in particular, uh, it's in the book of Hebrews, which was most likely written to a, in the early 60s AD uh, to a group of Jewish believers, so Christians, people who maybe were raised in the Jewish faith, but they found themselves putting their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And so the author is writing to these people, And he's been walking the entire book up to this moment. He's been walking through this letter and he's been expounding on and giving examples of how Jesus Christ is better than anything else this world has to offer. He says that Jesus Christ is better than the idols we construct, the identities we wrap ourselves up in. He says he's better than the heroes that we find in our lives. He's better even than the failures that we continually fall into. Over and over and over again, we see that Jesus Christ is better. And so he reaches chapter 11, where he talks about all these different men and women who walked by faith. These men and women who put their faith in, Jesus, or in God and in his promises. And we see that through their lives. He highlights all these different men and all these different women who, who accomplished amazing things for the Lord. Only because they allowed the Lord to work through them. Because they had faith in God. Yahweh. 
So he reaches the end of chapter 11 and he reminds his audience, though, that, hey, it's amazing to see these lives. It's great to see this sort of faithfulness. But we need to remember that ultimately our hope is not in faithfulness in this life. Our hope is not in maturity to be found in this life. He says, ultimately, our hope is that there is a life beyond this one. That there is a world beyond this one. That one day all of these things will be done away with. And we will have a new life on a new heaven in a new earth where we'll be with our Father for eternity. He says that's our hope. That one day all of this will be gone and we'll be a part of something new if our faith was placed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's our hope. But as we await that day, as we await that glory, as we await that new perfection, he says we've got to do something with the time we've been given. We're called to run. That's why he starts off chapter 12 by saying, summing up all of that, seeing the faithfulness and promise, that, that hope that we have in the future. He says, therefore, all of that said, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, He's referring to this this list, this laundry list of men and women who have walked faithfully. And I'll tell you right now that this passage, a lot, maybe you've heard it preached a lot of different ways, uh, but I just want to kind of pause a moment and, and maybe fill you in on something that maybe you haven't heard taught. But generally speaking, any modern scholar is going to tell you that these witnesses, this, this use, this term that we see used, is not actually talking about spectators in a stand. That preaches really well. And, you know, you can still uh, try to make an argument for it uh, on an interpretive basis, but 90% of modern scholars will tell you, no, this witness, this is the same term where we actually get martyr. This is someone whose life bears witness to something else. The same way that if I'm a martyr, I, I die and my death points to something greater, an, an ideal or, a, or another person or a certain belief. In the same way, these people have borne witness to God. He talked about all these men and these women who lived lives of faithfulness and their lives bore witness to how great God is, to how faithful God is. He says, therefore, we're surrounded by all of these incredible examples who aren't necessarily watching us from heaven. There's actually no clear biblical evidence that anyone in heaven observes the things on earth. This is their go-to passage and it doesn't really hold up. So while it's possible, it's not clear biblically that that's even a thing. I say that not to start a new crusade against that thought or that that process, but maybe I say it because I feel it's my responsibility to just help us maybe not perpetuate confusion. But we see that there's this cloud of witnesses, these men and women whose lives have borne witness to the faithfulness of God. He says we've, we've got these examples all around us. And honestly, that's something that we maybe have a tendency to forget that I have a tendency to forget that our Old Testament is full of lives that bear witness to the power of God. It's full of lives from which we can learn so much. Paul talks about this in Romans 15. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul's talking about what we know as our Old Testament full of of narratives and and poetry and prophecy and law. 
He says those things, the, the wisdom found in there, the poetry found in there, all of those things, they are written for our encouragement, to, to build our endurance. We see lives. One of my favorite things about our Old Testament is the, the narratives, the, the lives that we get to see unfold. There's so much that we can learn from those lives. That's why this fall uh, in college, in our college services, we're actually going through the book of Judges, looking at different lives of people. That's why in our family services, we're going through Acts, which is in the New Testament, but it's the same structure, same narrative structure, looking at the lives of men and women who have gone before us. Because there's so much to be learned, so much we can gain, so much that God has embedded in those stories that we can learn, that we can grow from. There's encouragement there. Right? We know this. Right? We, generally speaking, in our general lives, we go to people. We try to learn from others' lives. When my wife and I, uh, we now have an uh, eight-month-old daughter. Her name is Charlotte, uh, and she likes sitting on the floor. And she is great. But I'll tell you, when we first knew that she was coming, when we knew that we were expecting to have a daughter, as Susan, my wife, was pregnant, we were unsure of what the future held, right? We were a little bit confused, a little bit anxious. And so we thought, well, what are we going to do? Well, let's talk to people that are already parents. And so I had so many conversations with other parents asking them, like, how, how, (laughs) how do you parent? Like, how, how does it work? I see you have children and they eat and they wear clothes. How, how have you done, like, how have you done this? Like I, we sought to unfold the mystery of parenting by talking to other people. We find ourselves in situations approaching maybe an unknown. We think, well, I got to go learn from someone else's life. I had a buddy who got married a while back. They uh, were engaged for six months. In that six months, they read six books, like solid books on marriage. He and his fiance together read six books in six months. It was, they were so prepared for marriage. I guess it's been perfect. I don't know. I should follow up with them. But they are now, they're not expecting a child. They're pregnant. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, good luck with all those books. Like, there's so many more. For every book on par- or marriage, there's like a thousand on parenting. Uh, and so I can, I just, good luck. And so they want to be prepared, though. They want to be ready for that moment. So they look, I want to learn from someone else's life, someone that's gone before me. We do this. We know this to be true. So why don't we use our Old Testament in that way? Some of us do, but maybe some of us have never done that. Some of us maybe have never sat down, read a narrative, a story from our Old Testament with the goal of, of learning and growing. I would encourage you, if that's you, if you've not tried that, or if maybe you're trying to think, man, what am I going to do over these next couple weeks before the semester really hits me? I would encourage you, maybe you could go into your Old Testament. Maybe you could open up Genesis, Judges, 1 Kings, one of those books that have stories of men and women who've walked before you, and read it. Read one life per week. Sometimes that's not a lot of actual Scripture. One life per week. And when you reach the end of that life, just think, what is one thing I can take away from that? There's plenty of options, but what's just one? I'm going to pick one thing to learn from the life of Joseph, from the life of Moses, from the life of Nehemiah, from the life of Ezekiel, from the life of Deborah, the life of Ruth. There's going to be one thing I'm going to pull out of that life. It's awesome. I've done it, and it's, it's so rewarding. The Lord can use those lives so powerfully in our current lives. Or maybe what you need to do is to look outward at someone in our current day, someone who maybe is in a home group. If you're not in a home group, 
I would encourage you to look, look into that. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be pushing home groups really powerfully, our, our small groups that meet during the week or even our, our studies that meet on Sunday mornings. And it's an opportunity, uh, whether it's through the week or on a Sunday, for you to go and look outward to find another person that maybe is a few steps ahead of you, that maybe is a few steps behind you, who maybe is right alongside of you. And you can learn from that person. You can grow because of that person. The Lord calls us to minister to one another. That's why the church, the body of Christ exists so that we can build each other up, so that we can bring certain gifts and experiences to the table that someone else doesn't have. So maybe join that home group, and maybe you're in one, but really, really get serious about it. Use that opportunity, use that resource to learn, to grow, to find wisdom from an older or younger or same age believer. But we're not just looking outward. The author tells us we also need to look in. He says we need to let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely that let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. First and foremost, he says, look, there's a race, or we, what we need to recognize first and foremost is there's a race that is set before us. We need to look inward and really ask ourselves, man, have I set that race? Have I looked forward? Do I see the course marked out for me? Have I set a course in front of me? Whether you're 8, 18, 28, or 80, we all spend time in our lives setting courses for what we consider important, setting goals uh, in our, our work or in our school or in our relationships. We do this automatically. Uh, there's a grade that I want to make. Or there's a grade that we want to achieve somewhere. There's a promotion that we want to receive, a responsibility on the job that we want to be put over. I would just came from Impact, was out of Impact a few days uh, over the last couple weeks, and that's just a bunch, in case you know what Impact is, it's just a bunch of incoming freshmen who are there to learn and grow uh, in their knowledge of the Lord. And so these incoming freshmen are showing up at Impact, and I'll tell you, they're setting goals for all of those. All at once. It's very impressive. They're, they know, like, hey, i got to plan out my grades. I need to plan out kind of what job, what major I'm going to set up. Uh, and i am got to lock down that spouse, like, now. Because when else would I do that, right? And so you see them just literally walking around, asking each other, hey, what's your major? And like, how many kids did you want to have? Okay, cool. Just so we know. We set goals for ourselves. We map out courses for our lives, for those things we consider important. And what we see right here, what I'm telling you right now, is that we are called to set a course for our spiritual lives. The same way we do for school or work or relationships. Our walk with the Lord, our, our, our relationship with the Lord, our spiritual life calls us to have a, a, a goal, a course, some finish line. What's your spiritual goal? What's your goal for this semester? What's your goal for this year? What's your goal for this month? What's your goal for this week? This is why we push so hard uh, home groups. We, we push you to be in a study, in a midweek Bible study, or in a home group, or in a morning, Sunday morning study. This is why we push uh, for service. Why we announce things like, hey, please help us with this giveaway, this amazing outreach event that we have coming up. We do these things... Because we know that they are a part of setting a course for your spiritual life. We know that if you attend these things, if you are involved in these things, it's helping you set goals. 
And not only that, certain of some of those things, like if you're involved in leadership or, or something like the giveaway, you're really setting goals for someone else. You're not just setting them for yourself, but you're helping someone else set goals, mark a course for their own spiritual life. We're called to this as believers. We're trying to help you in this as a church. We want to see you with these goals. And what are they? Have you thought about your goals, your, your kids' goals? Your roommate's goals. Where are you headed? What's that course? But as we set that course and as we try to run that race, as we try to move through that environment, the author reminds us that there's going to be things that hold us back. That as we look inward, we're not just seeing, man, what goals have I set for myself, but we're also looking and seeing what's going to hold me back. What do I need to lay aside? What are the detriments in my life that need to be eliminated. We need to be aware of our weaknesses if we don't want them to cripple us over and over and over again. I have a good friend who uh, has been in the Marines for a few years, and he's uh, currently preparing himself to apply uh, to be in the Marine, uh, basically Special Operations Unit. And in order to do this, uh, there's a very lengthy uh, application process, a lengthy kind of trial process. And he's preparing for it as best he can. But the truth is, a lot of it is uh, very shrouded and very mysterious. Uh, and so he, there's only so much he can learn about the kind of initiation week of training, or like six weeks of training that you go through if you want to make it into Marine Spec Ops. And so he was telling us about it. He was saying, yeah, there's, there's like a few things that I know. Basically, the one thing that he knows for sure is that there is a moment that will arrive in the six weeks of training where they'll be at a pool. They'll be gathered around like a small body of water, probably a pool, and there will be some sort of object or lock or something at the bottom of that pool that he has to dive in and fix. He's got to like pick it up and bring it to the surface or rearrange some wires or something along those lines, something to accomplish at the bottom of this pool. And there's someone timing him the entire time as soon as he hits the water to know, okay, so how long is this going to take you? How long are you holding your breath? And as soon as he accomplishes that task, as soon as he kind of unlocks it or rearranges it or however it is, as soon as he starts to rise up to the surface of the water, there's going to be a trainer in the water who's going to grab him and not let go of him. And he's going to hold him at the bottom of that pool. And no matter how much he struggles, no matter how much he tries to like get out, uh, and he's going to hold him there until literally his eyes roll back into his head and he begins to suffocate. And at that point, the trainer will lift him up to the top of the water. They'll roll him out on the shore and they'll resuscitate him. They'll you know, do CPR, get the air in his lungs. Uh, but he will effectively drown. They are going to do this to him. And he told us this. I was like... <laughs> I'm sorry, my tax dollars are doing that to you. Like, why? Why? Why are you doing Like, why? Why are they doing this to you? And he said, well, the, the thing is, is he's like, and he wasn't freaked out about it. He's like, you know, it's going to be hard, but, you know, I haven't really drowned before. Uh, but I think, I think it would be okay. He says, because the goal in that moment is not to even, like, care about the whole, like, uh, fixing the thing at the bottom of the pool. The whole point of that, op- of that exercise, of that training moment, that development piece, is to see how long can you hold your breath. That's what they're testing. Because they know that he would give up quicker than he really has down underwater. You start to freak out and maybe your brain starts to like, oh, go, go. And, and so he says, no, like they hold you down so that the guy who's timing you, he's not timing how long it takes you to unlock the box. He's timing to see, okay, exactly how much time does he have underwater with his current breath capacity? How much time can he spend under there? And he says, and then I'll know. They'll tell me 
after they resuscitate me. And I will have that knowledge so that when I'm out in the field, if I'm freaking out, I'm in some sort of operation that, man, is, is, it's, a, it's a dangerous sort of situation, and I've got to be underwater as long as I possibly can, I can know in the back of my mind I have exactly four minutes, ten seconds, whatever it is. I have this exact amount. Even though I feel like my lungs are about to burst at three minutes, I know I've got one more. They learn their limitations so that when they're out in the field, they don't freak out. They don't mess up. Man, they know where they're headed. They know where they've been. They know where they're going. It says we've got to learn our limitations. The author says we need to look and see, man, what's holding me aside? What weight is there? What sin is there. And the author is very intentional with this language. He's saying that there's going to be a weight, and he intentionally uses a sort of uh, amoral term. He says, but there's also a sin, which is an immoral term, meaning that there are some things in our life that can hold us back that, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with them. But there are other things, there are sins that certainly, they're, in and of themselves, they are wrong, they are against the will of God, they are a sin. He says, but we've got to be careful for both. We need to be careful not to allow those sins to overwhelm us, those sins to crop up in our life over and over. But we need to be just as careful to avoid those weights, those amoral things that maybe in and of themselves aren't wrong, but as they build up, it's, it can waste our lives. It can waste our time. One of my favorite things in the world is finding statistics on how much time we spend watching Netflix on any given month. And what I discovered in preparing this talk uh, is that, man, we, we did real good. We've been doing really great with our Netflix watching. This past January, uh, we watched 114,000 years of content uh, in, on Netflix, just as America. 114,000 years in January. Uh, but at this point, in our world, uh, you know, flash forward eight months later, seven months later, uh, we are at a, we hit a really great milestone. Uh, we are currently, as a society, watching 11,000 years of Netflix per day, every single day. Yesterday, we watched 11,000 years of content, TV shows, Cake Boss, 11,000 years <laughs> Of cake boss just yesterday. It's amazing. That is something that can be good in moderation, right? There's nothing wrong with relaxing, with watching a show or a documentary. There's nothing wrong with, with watching a, a football game or, or a TV show or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with pulling back and just reading a book for fun. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But when they build up, when we allow it to become so much of our life, man, it can be a waste. And we need to be careful that it's not holding us down, that it's not a weight in our lives. So look inward. Not just to see, man, what are those detriments, but also be asking yourself, man, where could I be developed? Because the truth is that our lives, our endurance depends not just on casting aside the negative, but also embracing the positive. Not just eliminating the detriments, but also embracing the development that we can find in our lives. A few weeks ago, my wife and I decided it was time to cut out night feedings for our daughter. She would wake up in the middle of the night, my wife would feed her, everyone was happy. But, except for my wife, because she had to wake up in the middle of the night to feed her. And so we decided, you know, this will come to an end. She's got to learn. She's got to grow. So we said, okay, we're just going to eliminate night feeding. She doesn't need them to live. It's just purely a comfort thing. So in order for that to happen, uh, in order to accomplish that task, basically it was up to dad, 
right? So if, if our daughter, if Charlotte woke up in the middle of the night, it was up to me to go in to comfort her and to, uh, you know, give her her pacifier, help her go back to sleep. Sure enough, very first night we decided to do this. Charlotte woke up in the middle of the night, about 2 a.m. And so I went into her room, humming just that sweet nighttime song, ready to just move in lovingly and graciously and just comfort her back into deep, deep sleep. And as I approached her crib and, and looked down into her eyes that were normally so excited, they are always filled with so much joy when she, when she sees me. It's, it's beautiful. I love it. I love her. Uh, but in that moment, when I was expecting to see that joy, uh, instead I saw deep disappointment. <laughs> Just a deep knowledge that something was wrong. And, and then I heard that disappointment. Uh, I heard it expressed through a scream that I have not heard before then, and I hope to never hear again. Well, I've heard it a few times, but I only hear it in that exact situation, in that very specific scenario where she's trying to communicate, I want mom, and you're not mom. And I heard it. Ooh, I heard it. Ooh. Everyone heard it. Uh, it was a very powerful disappointment. And I'll tell you, as we walked through that, and I tried to just power through and help her out and sing her down, uh, it was exhausting. It was certainly exhausting for a time, for a few days, for, for a, a length of time. Uh, this would happen over and over, and I would hear that scream over and over. And it was exhausting, but it was needed. It was necessary. It was development that we needed to prepare Charlotte to endure without mom. It was development that I needed to endure uh, without mom. Like I had to learn this lesson. We all had to learn that lesson. And we endured through the exhaustion because we knew that this is development that we needed. What development should you be embracing? Maybe there's not a detriment that you need to eliminate, but there might be a development that you should embrace. What is it in your life that you could be embracing for spiritual development. There's two great questions that I love, that I encourage people to ask themselves, that I try to ask myself on a regular basis. Two questions. One being, where am I known? In other words, who's keeping me accountable? Who, who knows me? Who can I share my life with? For many of us, we have a spouse, and that's great. But outside of that, even, wh- where am I known? Who knows me? Who's keeping me accountable? Who's asking me those tough questions? that maybe my spouse can't ask me because those tough questions are about how am I loving and serving my spouse? Where am I known? And I'm also going to ask myself for my spiritual development, where do I grow? Where do I grow? In other words, where am I being poured into? Where am I learning? Where am I growing? Where am I reading the word uh, by myself? Where am I reading the word in community? Where do I have maybe just a Bible study, a, a simple devotional that I go through in the evenings or in the mornings? Where am I helping my children grow? Where am I helping my spouse grow? Where am I known? Where do I grow? And if you're honestly asking yourself those questions, if you're honestly pursuing answers to those questions, man, I'm telling you, that is development that is needed. That is development that is necessary, and it is development that will pay off incredible dividends in your life, in your spiritual life. But we're not just looking outward 
at these believers, whether they're in our scripture or whether they're in our life. We're not just looking inward to see what's holding me back, what could propel me forward. We're also looking up. We're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm looking to Jesus, and the author is using very intentional language, drawing to mind, to his readers' minds, who remember were most likely Jewish believers who knew all the Old Testament stories. He says, we are looking And it's the same term, the same idea as the people, as the Israelites had in Numbers 21. All of his audience would be immediately thinking of Numbers 21. They would think of this situation, this time where the Israelites were afflicted by a disease. They were dying because of their sin, because of their disbelief. And so God, in his mercy, told Moses how to construct the snake, just a bronze snake on top of a staff. That if they set it up in the center of camp, anyone who looked at it, same terms, whoever looked at it would be healed, would have life. What we saw in Numbers 21, what we see right here is that this looking, it's not just this mystical action. It's not this thing that I do that really saves me. Instead, this looking, what it does is it indicates a deeper faith. It's a behavior that reveals a belief. It's an action that reveals an attitude. If I am looking to Jesus... It means that I have put my faith, I am trusting in him. Another way to translate it, I'm trusting in him and what he's done for my behalf. I'm looking to him because he's the founder of my faith. He's the perfecter of my faith. He is my righteous savior who endured the cross, who despised the shame. In other words, it uh, could also be translated, he disregarded the shame. He says, I don't even care about that because he knew that he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We look to Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus Christ because he endured first. And when we look at his life, when we look at the way that he endured ridicule and shame from the people he was saving, we realize that the trials in my life, the storms in my life, the temptation in my life, Jesus endured through more. He went above and beyond anything that we could face. That's why he told his disciples, you don't have to fear the world anymore. There's nothing in this world that can defeat you. There's nothing that you need to be terrified of because I've already overcome it. There's nothing that will hit you that surprises God. He takes care of just the little birds in the field. Don't you know that he's going to take care of you? his prized creation, his children, his sons and daughters that he created in his own image? We look at Jesus Christ because he has endured. We look at Jesus Christ because he himself looked to the Father. Because he himself looked beyond the exhaustion that he was hit with for the sake of enduring, for the sake of the glory that was to come. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf for the glory that was before him. He has given us a beautiful example of endurance. 
And it is only by trusting in him, it is only by looking at him, by putting our faith in him, that we have even just the faintest chance of enduring ourselves. Those principles are good. It's good to look out and learn and grow. It's good to look in, to eliminate the hindrances, to embrace the help. But ultimately, all of those things are pointless and fruitless if we don't start from the position of trusting Jesus Christ. So I don't know what this semester has for you. I don't know what's going to be exhausting. I don't know if maybe you're already exhausted, that you're looking at this semester and you're freaking out because you're like, man, I'm already tired. I don't know where you are. But I hope and pray that you find someone that you can talk to about it, that you find somewhere where you can be known. I hope and pray that you find somewhere that you can grow in the midst of that exhaustion, somewhere that there are people that will sharpen you, that will encourage you. But man, ultimately, I hope and pray that you are coming from a place where you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins, where you know and trust that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth for your sake to offer forgiveness, the free gift of eternal life, if you just trust him, if you just put your faith in him. That's all he asks. I'm excited for this semester. I hope you are too. Let's endure. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity to live for you. That, God, you don't just call us into your family. You don't just adopt us as sons and daughters uh, and then tell us to just sit back and relax. But that, God, you adopt us, you bring us into your family, and then you give us a mission. God, you give us a purpose. Lord, you put people in our lives who need to hear that gospel. God, you put people in our lives that need to be brought into the same family. God, we ask that we would be faithful to see those people, to reach out to those people, to minister to those people. God, I know that it can be exhausting. God, I know we've all faced some element of exhaustion this summer. That God, it's coming for those of us that maybe have avoided it so far. But Lord, I know that you are good that you're a good, good Father who is strong in our weakness. So Lord, let us remember that. Let us trust in that. God, let us encourage one another in that. So Lord, be with us as we move out from today. God, change something in us that someone else will notice, that will change something in their heart that brings them to you. God, we ask all these things in your will. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys, and we'll see you uh, in a week.